with you here today, and especially kind of a holiday weekend. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I tremendously enjoy about holidays more and more is just having our family together, which is more of a rare occasion because one of our one of our boys lives in Cleveland, and one lives in down in Washington D.C. So being together is not as frequent as it used to be, and. For parents who were used to all their children sitting around the table every night and then you see them three to four times a year, that uh, it makes it all the more special. So we had all of them at home uh, over the weekend. They went home. Some of them went home now, but uh, it was just really good to have family time. So those are things I value a lot. And so it's good to be here today to worship God together because we are family. I mean, I'm from Christian life, but we are family, really, in essence, because we're part of the family of God, and so we all have the same Father, and so it's good every time we're together, uh, wherever that is. And I've enjoyed that in many places around the world where um, you get together with people, and um, always good to be with God's people. I'm going to invite you <clears throat> to turn with me to the book of Romans, and I'm going to preach out of Romans chapter 1 and the first seven verses, which is really Paul's introduction uh, to the uh, letter of Roman or the letter of Romans that he's writing to the church there, and it's inter his introduction to that where he introduces himself and then kind of introduces the essence of his message. And so I want to look at that, and if you put a title to this, I would say uh, you could put this title to it, A Reliable Message and Messenger. And we're going to look and unpack some of that as we look at the things that he says as he introduces himself to the church at Rome, and just a few background things, because I think it's always good to have a little bit of context to a passage of Scripture that we're looking at. Paul had actually never been to meet these people. He had never seen them in person. How much he knew any individual there, we don't know for sure, but obviously there were many people in the church he would not have known on a personal level. He had heard a lot about them. He wanted to go there to see them, but in place of being able to go to see them, he writes them a letter. We're privileged to have it today uh, as the letter to the, to the Roman church, and uh, it's packed full of really, really good things. And we'll uncover some of those here in our text today. But Rome is a city of probably around a million people at this time. And it's a city that has a very clear class structure. There are the, um, the ruling class, or you could say the aristocracy, and those are the people who are in power and in government. And then underneath that you had, they call them the equestrian level of people who were property owners, landowners, wealthy people. And then the working class of person uh, who was mostly just a laborer, not a wealthy person. And then underneath that you had freedmen who were former slaves who had attained to their freedom and then at the very bottom of the structure in Rome, you had slaves. Now, to, we're going to get to that after a little bit, but to understand the context in which that is, when I say the word slavery, many of you will think immediately of slavery in America. The slavery they had here is not quite like that. It, 
there's some key differences to it. Um, the slavery they had there, they would go and conquer a foreign country and then they would bring those people back into their country and many of them would be slaves in Rome. And they were owned by a lot of the ruling class of people. The estimate is, is that there were about 500,000 slaves in Rome. So out of a million people, maybe half or so are slaves. And slaves were people who sometimes were actually today, we would say they are professional people. Um, I am, this would not have been in Rome, but Michael Card thinks that Luke, the physician, was a slave. And he fleshes it out why he believes that. But in reading and researching this, I ran across that physicians were slaves sometimes. Uh, musicians were slaves, artists. So if you were a rich family and you wanted a musician in your family, you might go out and buy a guy who could play instruments well and he was your slave and you owned him. So a little bit different than, than the slavery they had in the South. Um, not quite the same kind of slavery, slavery nevertheless. But that's part of what's interesting when we're going to look and unpack what Paul says here is that whole concept. So remember that slaves are in the lower level of the social structure of their day. They are the people who are at the bottom. And in human experience, we all like to move up the ladder. We don't like to occupy the bottom, if we can help that. And so it would have been the same for their day. So let's read, having that in mind. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're preaching through the book of Romans in our church, and I will tell you this, when I thought about preaching here, I was not intending to preach out of Romans. I was going to preach something else, and it seemed God led me to this passage of Scripture, and I said, okay, God, we'll go with what you're laying on my heart to preach about today. So that's why we're here in this passage of Scripture, uh, and so we'll try to unpack some of the things that he's speaking about here, which this passage is packed full of a lot of really, really good things. When you look at the opening verse, Paul obviously introduces himself first of all, and I want to look at this as the credibility of the messenger. Now, I don't necessarily like the word the reliability of the messenger, although in my title I had the reliability of the message and the messenger, but it is important who we listen to in life and who we allow to influence us in life. And so Paul, unlike letters we write today, if you were to write a letter today, you would wait until the end to actually identify yourself, right? They did it back there. They put it first, Paul. I'm the one writing the letter. But what I find is really interesting about the way that Paul writes it here is the first thing that he chooses as his identity and 
I, I use the ESV here, and many of you have a variety of translations. You might have the word servant in there, but a more accurate word is actually slave. That's the first thing he uses to say, this is who's writing the letter, is a slave. Now, you ask the question, okay, in light of the fact that they live in a culture where slaves occupy the bottom, why does Paul identify himself as occupying, in their minds, the bottom of that structure? But that's the first thing he says, is I'm a slave. And when you look at what Paul is saying, it's the picture of a bond servant. And in this case, the way, the context, and also the, the word that he uses here, the idea is not of someone who is in forced bondage to another person, but is actually a picture of someone who is a willing bond servant to another person. And so that's the first thing he identifies himself as, is as a slave of Jesus Christ, that he's a willing servant of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to set a little bit of context here. If you will turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15, I want to look at verse 12, 13, and 16, and 17, because it is in the Old Testament that we get a good picture of what Paul is referring to here by his imagery of a bond servant. So in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12 and 13. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. So you've got a guy, every seven years, if he's a Hebrew slave, the year of Jubilee, you release him and let him go. He's looking forward to that time when, how many of you wouldn't be counting down the years? One more year, two, three more months, you know, ten more days. Freedom. I'm out of here. I'm gone. Now notice what happens. Verse 16. This is the slave that gets to the year of Jubilee. He says, but if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an all and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever, and to your female slave you shall do the same. So the slave says, I love you, master. I like it here. I don't want to be any other place than right here. So take me to the door and put a hole through my ear that marks me as your slave for life. And at that moment, he surrenders all ambition he has had to be his own person doing his own thing and living his own life. And that is precisely the picture that we get in Romans chapter 1 when Paul says, first and foremost, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I am willingly here. I love my master and I have given up my life and my way of life in order to follow Jesus Christ. And from now on, my life belongs to him, and it's not my own. And there's a certain humility that is refreshing about someone, because he's not pointing people to himself or lifting himself up. Yes, he does identify himself, and we'll look at that in a little bit as an apostle, which is a 
a position with a degree of authority in the early church, but what he identifies himself with is that he has surrendered his own way of living and his own desires in order to live a life that is marked by yieldedness to Jesus Christ. And he willingly identifies, and anyone who comes to faith in Christ has to learn to embrace that because it is, it is in embracing that that you find the greatest joy and the greatest freedom. And some of us get it the moment we're saved. We get it in varying degrees. Uh, when you become born again, you understand you're giving your life to Jesus Christ. But then what happens along the journey of life is God says, okay, but what about this over here? I want you to give this up. And we oftentimes are very reluctant because we tend to think, well, Jesus, I accepted you as my Savior. I said, I want you to be my Savior. Why can't I have this? And God has a way of keeping and putting his hand on things in our life and saying, I want you to give this up. And to be a slave means I don't have those rights anymore to say no. Because once you're a willing slave, you willingly give yourself up for your master and the one who has called you. And so Paul considers it not an insult but he actually considers it a great honor to be a slave of Christ. Now, he puts himself in the company of some really good people in Scripture, and I'm not going to take time to turn to those passages, but there were men in Scripture, and I'll list a few of them out for you, but Moses and David and Joshua all identified themselves as servants of Jesus Christ. So he puts himself in the company of those people and identifies himself with them. And so it is a voluntary service and subjection, not bondage. He's found freedom in actually being a slave. And we choose our realm of freedom and our realm of bondage in life. And Romans teaches that later on in the book, that we either become a slave to God and free from the bondage of sin, or we remain a slave to sin, and we, know we cannot serve God because we're a slave to this over here. So we choose our level of service and our level of slavery and what we're going to be in bondage to. And in this he identifies himself, first of all, as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now let's move on to look at his next form of identity is that he does identify himself as an apostle, which gives him... So think about this. You have never met this man. And you get this long letter. I mean, it's six, we have divided it into 16 chapters. But imagine opening the mail, or this, they, they transported it by a courier, an individual person would bring it, and you get this letter. Now, you've never met the man, so how do you know what he's telling you is actually reliable? Well, he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, that he has been called by God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And an apostle literally is one who has been sent by God. But more specifically, in the New Testament, Jesus calls his disciples, he calls them apostles. In Luke chapter 6, verse 13, um, let me just read that for you. You don't necessarily need to turn to that, but Luke chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus says this, he says, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And so Jesus chooses the first 12. Judas obviously betrays him. 
and is no longer in that company. But then when you go to the book of, of Corinthians, Paul fleshes out a little bit more what the requirements were for a person who was called an apostle. And you can turn to that in 1 Corinthians chapter... I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7 and 8, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 and 8, and Paul... The church at Corinth questions his credibility at times to speak the way he does. But this is what he says, Then Jesus, or then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so he identifies himself as an apostle based on the fact that he had literally seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, I believe uh, that was actually Jesus, and Paul saw him, and that is God's call, and also his seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus qualified him as an apostle. And he asked that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, have I not seen Christ? And so that allowed him to speak with authority, and the early apostles could write Scripture on the level of Old Testament prophets, and they could also speak with authority to the early church. So there's this direct connection between these men and the risen Christ. So you have Jesus appointing these men. Paul is one who comes in a little later, but all of them have directly seen Jesus, and that qualified them to speak with authority. It safeguarded the early church because the same problem existed in their day as does in our day, and it didn't take long for it to happen. It happened in, in the early churches. People speak saying that they're speaking for God when, in fact, they're not. And that's one of the questions we have to ask. Just because someone says I'm speaking for God does not necessarily mean they are speaking for God. And so we have to look at how do I discern who is speaking for God and who is simply speaking, but it's not necessarily directed and led by God. And Paul is very careful to make sure that people understand that there's a good foundation to the things he's speaking to them about. And we're going to go back to, to the book of Romans, and I want to pick up on some of that. Because he identifies himself as one who has been given credibility, so to speak, or authority, I should say, by Jesus Christ himself. And now he can speak with authority to the early church. But here's what is noteworthy. If you will notice verse 2, which he promised, or in, let's start in the last phrase of verse 1 so that we understand what he's saying. But he says he set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So what Paul does is he ties the message that he has for the people, he ties that directly back into the Old Testament that the message he's preaching is not a new novel message that is something they've never ever heard before, but he, sure that salvation is a new message, but he ties the gospel message directly back into the Old Testament, that this bears record that what I'm telling you is true. And it's an incredibly important part of verifying the message that they preach. I find it interesting because Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he's baptized by the Holy Spirit, and he gets up to preach. 
And he preaches a powerful message. But one of the things he does is he brings, immediately he brings in an Old Testament scripture that verifies who Jesus was. And so there's this reliability that is established by the message being consistent with what has already been spoken by God. And everything for any of us, anybody we believe, anybody we choose to listen to, one of the criteria you always have to look at is, is what they are telling me consistent with everything God has already revealed. Because if it's not, then it's not from God at all, because it has to be consistent with the teachings of Scripture. And a man like Paul, as much as he had a clear call in his life and an authority given to him by God, he always tied in what he was saying to people with what had already been revealed by God. Um, <clears throat> there's a prominent man today, uh, one of the, I would call him a trendsetter in, in Christian churches. I've heard him speak numerous times at events, and I've been inspired by what he has said. And he, his latest book that he wrote, he wrote, he's written a number of books, and the latest book he wrote, the premise of the book, I think is really great. It's about the church needing to recapture the dynamic energy and power of the early church, and I'm all for that. I mean, I'm like, yeah, I, I think that's great. We need that. We need to hear that. But then I'm bothered by, and I didn't read the entire book. Actually, I read the parts that are free on, uh, <laughs> on the Internet. But um, I'm not sure I'm going to buy the book. I'm bothered by some things he says. And one of the things that is in the book that bothers me a little bit, and it's not necessarily in his own words what I'm saying, but it's the basis of some of what he says, is it's almost as though he's trying to take the Old Testament and the New Testament and put a big chasm between the two. That that was then and this is now. And I'm puzzled by that. I'm like, so why is that such a big deal. The early church was really dynamic and they kept rooting the teachings they had into the Old Testament and they kept going to the Old Testament and, and telling people, look, here it reveals Jesus to you. Can't you see it in the writings that are given here? And in seeing that, it inspired people. And so I'm not quite sure where, so I'm puzzled by what's he trying to say um, by trying to put a big chasm between the two because the essence of it is that the whole book is God's story. And it's a progressive revelation, but it's not that was then and this is now. Sure, there's some things that were part of the Old Covenant, but think about this. Can you understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ without knowing about animal sacrifice? It might sound really strange to you if you never knew any of that. And think about interpreting the book of Romans without knowing anything about Jewish culture and tradition. And the law, not even knowing what it is. And so when you look at scripture, it is the entire thing is God's story. I fit into that. It's never about me. It's always about God's story and how that is unfolded. And so in looking at that, we need to make sure that we understand the consistency of Scripture from the beginning to the end. And sure, there are difficult things in the Old Testament. I would be the first to tell you that there are difficult things. I cannot explain them to you. But 
it also reveals God, and it doesn't only reveal God as this angry God, it reveals God in the midst of dealing with unregenerate people as being this God of grace and mercy. And throughout, from Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, throughout the Old Testament, there's this revelation that there's a Messiah that is coming. And so it needs to be founded on, on that and what we believe and who we believe and who we listen to. Because it's such an important thing now. Most of you, well, there's maybe one or two of you who are alive and remember this event. Uh, Forty years ago, November 18, and this, would, this is an extreme example, but 40 years ago, November 18, 1978, there was a whole group of people down in Jonestown, Guyana, who committed suicide. And they were led by a man named uh, Jim Jones. He started out in Indiana, and I read most of a a recent book that came out about him where they go through and do kind of a a biography of his life. (coughs) And it is hard reading because... It is heartrending to read about people who are being deceived. But he starts out as this man who, he didn't really have any theological training, and he's kind of trying to find his place in life. And he discovers that he can kind of serve as, a, as a, an evangelist going around preaching, and he did healing campaigns. Early on, that was one of the things that he did to draw people in, is he would have a healing campaign. And one of the things that was important when he went to any town, it never works for those people to go to one town and and all of a sudden it doesn't really work to heal somebody. And so what you find when you research some of these people is they they resort a lot of times to a lot of fake healings, planting people in the audience, doing fake things so that when this guy comes to town, it really will happen. And that's kind of back to this whole thing because the movement became all about himself. And one of the things that is almost always noted about people who are deceptive or who are misleading is when you really look at what they're saying and their teaching, so much of it centers on them being the central part of it. And when you have a preacher and a teacher who is presenting truth to you, the light always shines on Jesus Christ and not on the person. And that's why Paul can clearly say when he starts out here, I'm a slave. So if you want to think I'm nothing, that's fine. To him, that does not matter. What matters to him is that Jesus Christ is everything and that when he is done teaching these people, they're not so impressed with Paul, but they're impressed with Jesus and who he is. And so you will always find, I think, from everything I have read from different people, is one of the things that can clearly be an earmark of people who are deceptive is so much is wrapped on them as a person and them being present and what they are able to do rather than on what Jesus is able to do. And the focus has to always go back to Jesus Christ. And so to look at the reliability and the credibility of the message, is it con- so ask these questions. We have to ask good questions when we're looking at people because it can be hard to tell. But is it consistent with Scripture? Can I verify it? Otherwise, it's just someone speaking. And there's lots of people who try to speak and create a following. But we have to be careful about that. And does it teach the gospel message, which is the good news of salvation from sin through 
the atoning work of Christ, is that the core of what they're getting people to, is to really repent of sin and come to know Jesus? Does it exalt Jesus? There's a lot of other things we could mention along with that, but I think those at least are some basic things that, that we can look at as we go through life and navigate life and listen to people, hear people. Is Who we listen to is so important because they can easily lead us away from truth. And I have to have this front and center in my mind all the time. I am fully capable of being deceived. And I believe that. I don't doubt that one bit. I believe that the prevention of it is as I study the Word of God and as I measure everything that I believe and accept with what has already been revealed by God, but I would never say because I'm a pastor, been a Christian a long time, I don't know that I can be deceived. I'm fully capable of being deceived. And so I have to understand my own weakness in that area. I have to recognize it and I have to say, okay, God, I need the Holy Spirit and I need the Word of God because the Word of God develops a clear and consistent standard. And so we have... The messenger, we have also the message that he is preaching, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he fleshes it out very well. We don't have much time to look at that, but it's, he's declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. And no one else can claim that. There's only Jesus Christ. And so that verified who Jesus was. It verified the fact that he can provide redemption for us. And then I want to close with the latter part of our text here because he talks about the purpose of why he is preaching and teaching. And so there's a number of things that he lists here, and we'll look at those in verse 5, 6, and 7. But he says, first of all, in verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship, God's enabling power. We've been sent by God and given authority by God to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, which is Jesus, among all the nations. And so his purpose and motivation in preaching the gospel is to bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ where they begin to live in obedience to Christ where instead of living their own way and living their own sinful way, they are brought into a relationship with God and now begin to live a life of obedience to Christ. And obedience is not a bad word. It's not a legalistic term. It is a term that expresses an end to my way of doing things, an embrace of God's way of doing things. So never think that obedience is kind of this this bad word or this word that's kind of in the background of the good news we preach. Because if you look, Rome, Rome was a very decadent city at this time. Uh, they had all manner of evil and wickedness and stuff that was beyond imagination. Nero is emperor at the time. This is written in AD 58. Nero is emperor, and he was a horrific emperor. In fact, so bad that even as bad as Rome was at one time, they finally, I think it was the Roman Senate, basically made a decree The essence of it was that he's unfit to be the emperor and anybody could really kill him without penalty. And he quickly went off and committed suicide. So Paul is preaching to pagan people. He's writing a letter here to the church, but his passion is to bring people to a place where they're willing to give up 
the ways of sin and wickedness and live a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. And it's in obedience that I think we capture being a passionate people for God. I think it is through that. And how is that? I think we don't actually get to know Jesus in reality without obedience. Because I don't, I, I can look at scripture and I can say, well, I think I know what this means, but when I actually go out and do it, all of a sudden I understand. So, for instance, when Jesus says, love your enemy, sounds good, sounds nice, sounds ideal. As long as I don't have any big enemies, I'm all for that scripture. But what about when someone has really mistreated me and God says, okay, I want you to do something really kind and nice for that person. When you do that, all of a sudden you understand what God is getting at. And without doing it, you don't really understand. It's a concept. But what God wants us to do is to understand through experience what it is to know him. And obedience is the route through which people get to really know and understand God. I do not think there's any other way possible for us to really know and understand God other than through the life lived in obedience to God. Because it's, one, it's, a, it's an end of our way of doing things, and secondly, it's how God reveals himself to us. It's through me saying, okay, God, I understand that obedience is more about than just me doing a certain thing. It's about me understanding you and about knowing you. And that's why you call me to live a life of obedience is because that's how we get to know God. And I believe that's why Paul is passionate about preaching the gospel and seeing people's lives changed and them living in obedience because ultimately he wants them to know God. That's the thing that brings the greatest joy in life is to know God. There are a number of things that he lists here, and I'll list these out in closing, but... He says, for obedience of faith among all nations, he wants people to live a life of obedience and faith. They're called to belong to Jesus. The end of verse 6, they are a part of God's kingdom that he's establishing. To all those who are in Rome, loved by God and called to be saints. And so God brings us in and makes us a part of his kingdom and he wants our lives to reflect Christ. And in obedience, we begin to reflect Christ. Without obedience, we can't reflect Christ. And God calls us to be his children and his people in the world in which we live. And yeah, the world is ever increasing in wickedness. But rather than bemoan that fact, embrace the fact that the darker the world is, the greater the opportunity to be salt and light in this world and to shine the light of Christ in this world. Because we have opportunities today. More so than ever, we have available to us all kinds of technology. Let me just give you this in closing, and this is using prepositional phrases. But the gospel is, the good news is the gospel of God about Christ according to the scripture for the nations unto the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Christ. And that kind of wraps in a nutshell the last couple verses in, in our text here. But humility is one of the key hallmarks, I think, of all servants of God. And it needs to be the hallmark of our lives, is humility. An embrace of God's will and God's purpose. So... 
I'm going to turn the time over to Mervyn again. Thank you to all of you, and God bless you as you journey in your walk of faith.